Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Mark 10, verses 28 to 34, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts in Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 10, verses 28 to 34. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing which demands our attention in these verses is the glorious promise which they contain. The Lord Jesus said to his apostles, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. There are few wider promises than this in the word of God. There is none certainly in the New Testament which holds out such encouragement for the life that is now. Let everyone that is fearful and faint-hearted in Christian service look at this promise. Let all who are enduring hardness and tribulation for Christ's sake study this promise well and drink out of it comfort. To all who make sacrifices on account of the gospel, Jesus promises a hundredfold now in this time. They shall not have only pardon and glory in the world to come. They shall have even here upon earth hopes and joys and sensible comforts sufficient to make up for all that they lose. They shall find in the communion of saints new friends, new relations, new companions, more loving, faithful, and valuable than they ever had before their conversion. Their introduction into the family of God shall be an abundant recompense for exclusion from society of this world. This may sound startling and incredible to many ears, but thousands have found by experience that it is true. To all who make sacrifices on account of the gospel, Jesus promises eternal life in the world to come. As soon as they put off their earthly tabernacle, they shall enter upon a glorious existence and in the morning of the resurrection shall receive such honor and joy as past man's understanding. Their light afflictions for a few years shall end in an everlasting reward. Their fights and sorrows while in the body shall be exchanged for a perfect rest and a conqueror's crown. They shall dwell in a world where there is no sin, death, no devil, no cares, no weeping, no parting, for the former things will have passed away. God has said it, and it shall all be found true. Where is the saint 
who will dare to say in the face of these glorious promises that there is no encouragement to serve Christ? Where is the man or woman whose hands are beginning to hang down and whose knees are beginning to faint in the Christian race? Let all such ponder this passage and take fresh courage. The time is short. The end is sure. Heaviness may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Let us wait patiently on the Lord. The second thing which demands our attention in these verses is the solemn warning which they contain. The Lord Jesus saw the secret self-conceit of his apostles. He gives them a word in season to check their high thoughts. Many that are first shall be last, and the last first. How true are these words when applied to the twelve apostles? There stood among those who heard our Lord speak a man who at one time seemed likely to be one of the foremost of the twelve. He was one who appeared more careful and trustworthy than any. He had the charge of the money bag and kept what was put in it. And yet that man fell away and came to a disgraceful end. His name was Judas Iscariot. Again, there did not stand among our Lord's hearers that day one who at a later period did more for Christ than any of the twelve. At the time when our Lord spoke, he was a young Pharisee, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, and zealous for nothing so much as the law. And yet that young man in the end was converted to the faith of Christ, was not behind the chief apostles, and labored more abundantly than all. His name was Saul. Well might our Lord say, The first shall be last, and the last first. How true were these words when we apply them to the history of Christian churches? There was a time when Asia Minor and Greece and North Africa were full of professing Christians, while England and America were heathen lands. Sixteen hundred years have made a mighty change. The churches of Africa and Asia have fallen into complete decay. The English and American churches are laboring to spread the gospel over the world. Well might our Lord say, The first shall be last, and the last first. How true these words appear to believers when they look back over their own lives and remember all that they have seen from the time of their own conversion. How many began to serve Christ at the time with themselves and seemed to run well for a season? But where are they now? The world has got a hold of one. False doctrine has beguiled another. A mistaken marriage has spoiled a third. Few indeed are the believers who cannot call to mind many such cases. Few have failed to discover by sorrowful experience that the last are often first and the first last. Let us learn to pray for humility when we read texts like these. It is not enough to begin well. We must persevere and go on and continue in well-doing. We must not be content with the fair blossoms of a few religious convictions and joys and sorrows and hopes and fears. We must bear the good fruit of settled habits of repentance, faith, and holiness. Happy is he who counts the cost, resolves, having once begun to walk in the narrow way, by God's grace never to turn aside. The last thing that demands our attention in this passage is our Lord's clear foreknowledge of his own suffering and death. Calmly and deliberately, he tells his disciples of his coming passion at Jerusalem. One after another, he describes all the leading circumstances which would attend his death. Nothing is reserved. Nothing is kept back. Let us mark this well. There was nothing involuntary and unforeseen in our Lord's death. 
It was the result of his own free, determinate, and deliberate choice. From the beginning of his earthly ministry, he saw the cross before him and went to it a willing sufferer. He knew that his death was the needful payment that must be made to reconcile God to man. That payment he had covenanted and engaged to make at the price of his own blood. And so, when the appointed time came, like a faithful substitute, he kept his word and died for our sins on Calvary. Let us ever bless God that the gospel sets before us such a Savior, so faithful to the terms of the covenant, so ready to suffer, so willing to be reckoned sin and a curse in our stead. Let us not doubt that he who fulfilled his engagement to suffer will also fulfill his engagement to save all who come to him. Let us not only accept him gladly as our Redeemer and Advocate, but gladly give ourselves and all we have to his service. Surely, if Jesus cheerfully died for us, it is a small thing to require Christians to live for him. That is the end of Rao's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, do the promises for here and the life to come encourage your heart when you contemplate them? When is the last time you thought about these blessings? Second, friends, are we not humble by the fact that it doesn't matter how we start, but that we persevere to the end in faith and in well-doing? How many do we count who started and have fallen since? Do we not see our need for daily grace? And third, do our hearts not hear of the faithfulness of Jesus and bless his name? Does hearing this give us fresh confidence that God who began a good work will bring it to completion? Does this cause us to take God for granted or desire to live for him today?